This is Brew Crime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer. That Nina will probably hate. Yeah, probably. Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps, and if you can't find it, contact us, and we'll try and change that. We can be found at brewcrime.com or on all social media platforms at brewcrime. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle. to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Well, I know it's been a while since I've released a new episode for you guys, but I've got just that for you tonight. And I've got several on the docket upcoming in the upcoming weeks and months. So you should be getting a lot of new stuff from me. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my patrons. I love you guys. You're the best. And with the holidays coming up, I'm definitely going to be sending out lots of goodies to all my kind, wonderful, and super handsome patrons. So if you'd like to get in on that, simply click the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com slash midnightsunmurder if you want to get some goodies in the mail. A lot of which will be stickers because I'm a giant child. So on today's episode, I'm going to be discussing two Alaska cold cases that recently had big breakthroughs after many, many years. I'll be discussing the murder of Shelley Connolly and the murder of Jessica Baggin. Now, there are actually many commonalities between the two cases, which was unintentional. Both victims were teenage girls. Both victims suffered unimaginable murders at the hands of a male perpetrator, and both cases have been cold for over 20 years, up until this past year. You know, both girls' names have actually been on my list of Alaska cases since the first day I started this podcast, and I could never have predicted that when I finally covered their cases, that there would be new information or a resolution for either of them. I can't imagine the pain of having lost a loved one, especially a child, and especially in such a violent way, and then having to spend decades without any answers. And I'm so glad that the families and friends of both girls now have some sort of answer to what happened to their friend or child. Before I get into those cases, I wanted to mention a recent development that is really relevant to crime in Alaska, even if it's not exactly relevant to the cases I'm discussing today. On Wednesday of this week, there was an announcement of a new initiative called the Operation Lady Justice Task Force. This initiative will be a cold case task force that focuses on missing and murdered Native American and Alaska Native women in several states, including Alaska. You know, in the past, I've discussed many, many cold case murders and disappearances of Alaska Native women, and so this is definitely a huge step forward for crime in Alaska. The president had previously visited various parts of Alaska last year, and he spoke with local Native Alaskan leaders about these types of issues in the state, 
And the president has now come through on his promise to create this cold case initiative to address this chronic issues. I actually covered a, a string of Anchorage cold cases involving Alaska Native female victims on episode 16, if you would like to hear some of those stories. According to the Administration for Native Americans, Commissioner Jeannie Howland, under Operation Lady Justice, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of the Interior, and the Department of Justice have increased our information sharing, are collaborating on decision-making, and have grown in the understanding of how our work contributes to making our communities a safer place for our relatives and future generations. We must move upstream to improve prevention, intervene for those in crisis, and support individuals, survivors, families, and communities in need of healing. I'm very happy to see that this big step has been taken because violence and murder perpetuated against female Alaska Native victims is a sadly common theme that I've come across while working on this show. And I sincerely hope that this cold case unit can start getting answers for the many families out there with lost loved ones. And now let's get into the first case for this episode, the murder of Shelley Connolly. Shelley Connolly was born in 1961 to parents James and Judy. By 1978, she was a pretty outgoing 16-year-old girl with her whole life ahead of her. She was planning to start cosmetology school and was engaged to a military man stationed at Fort Richardson. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, Anchorage in the 70s and 80s was a wild place. It had experienced a huge surge in population because of the construction of the Alaska oil pipeline. And a huge percentage of the population during the time was made up of men that were working on the pipeline who had plenty of money to spend in their off time, along with other out-of-state transplants that headed north to make a quick buck in a variety of ways. Dozens of bars sprang to life in Anchorage during the 70s, and with the huge increase in population, which was largely transitory, crime became a real issue. There were at least two active serial killers in the state during that time, and many more unsolved murders and missing persons cases. It was January 7, 1978, when Shelley's family saw her alive for the last time. She was getting ready to go out and have a fun night. Her mom, Judy, thought that her daughter was going roller skating, but Shelley had other plans. Unbeknownst to Judy, Shelley was actually planning to head out for some drinks at a bar that night. Even though obviously Shelley was only 16 and underage, it was a different time, rules were much, much more lax, and she had no problem getting served. And let me tell you, January in Alaska is an awful month. It's cold, always dark, and it seems like it lasts forever. And plenty of people get through the long, dark days with a little help from their pal Jack Daniels and his partner Jimmy Bean. 
And when you're young, there are few things more enticing on a dark, frozen night than a popular bar packed with patrons where you can get a drink, lots of laughs, and just have a break from the tedium of an Alaskan winter. That night, Shelley ended up at Chilkoot Charlie's, which is an iconic Anchorage establishment that has been around since 1970 and is still a popular hangout to this day. It's definitely a youthful rite of passage to go to Coots, as it's nicknamed, for the very first time. I know I spent an inordinate amount of time there in my early 20s. The timeline for that night is a little shaky, as alcohol tends to fog memories, which you may or may not know. But Shelley was seen talking to several men at Coots and leaving with at least one of them. And there was also a sighting of her at Leroy's Diner, which is another iconic Anchorage locale. But after that, there were no, no more confirmed sightings of her. The next day, her parents reported her missing, and later that evening, law enforcement had the grim task of going to Shelley's parents and delivering the worst news imaginable. That morning, two hitchhikers had found her body at mile 108 of the Seward Highway, approximately 20 miles south of Anchorage. Shelley had died violently. She had been physically and sexually assaulted, then thrown from a car, but her hand was slammed in the car door and she was dragged for an unknown distance before her murderer stopped the car and threw her into a ditch. It was revealed that tragically Shelley was still alive after this, and her broken fingernails indicated that she had tried to drag herself out of the ditch. But her injuries proved to be too great, and she died overnight from exposure and a ruptured spleen. When she was found, she was wearing clothes, but without a coat or shoes on, and the temperature had dropped down to the teens overnight. DNA was obtained during autopsy from under Shelley's fingernails, but there were no suspects. It would be 41 long years before Shelley's family had answers. For many years, the Alaska Bureau of Investigation Cold Case Unit pursued answers for Shelley and many other decades-old cases. But when the unit was disbanded in 2015, it seemed like there would never be an answer for her. Shelley's mother, Judy, had tried desperately over the years to get justice for her daughter. She did many interviews over the decades and tried to keep hope alive. But sadly, her case was never a huge story. The 70s were a violent time in Anchorage, and Shelley was murdered during Robert Hansen's killing spree. And she became just another name on a long list of young female murder victims. Eventually, Judy began to think that she may never know the truth. And sadly, during those years, Shelley's father James passed away in 2005 at age 63 without ever knowing who took his daughter. And then in 2019, out of nowhere, Judy received the most mind-blowing news. A man had been arrested for her daughter's murder. 62-year-old Donald McQuaid had been arrested in Gresham, Oregon. Law enforcement still, of course, had had the DNA sample from under Shelley's fingernails all these years, 
but it had never matched anyone in the system. So in 2018, they decided to get creative and try to find a match using genetic genealogy. I've discussed this new DNA technique on the show before, but just in case you're not sure about it or you don't, haven't heard of it, here's a quick definition from my friend Google. Genetic genealogy is the combination of genetic analysis with traditional, historical, and genealogical research to study family history. For forensic investigations, it can be used to identify remains by tying the DNA to a family with a missing person or to point to the likely identity of a perpetrator. It was the same method used to catch the Golden State Killer, and Alaska law enforcement had used the same technique to catch the murderer of Sophie Sergi earlier in 2019, which I've previously discussed. So Alaska law enforcement sent the DNA to Parabon Nanolabs so they could perform the genetic genealogy search. This company has made headlines many times in the last few years with their cutting-edge DNA technology, and there's been many instances of them helping to crack old cold cases. So they used genetic genealogy to find the McQuaid brothers. And research showed that Donald F. McQuaid, a resident of Gresham, Oregon, had been 21 years old and living in Alaska at the time of the murder. His appearance also matched an original witness statement of a man that Shelley had been seen leaving the bar with, and the car that he drove at the time also matched the witness's description of a car that Shelley was seen in. Gresham law enforcement tailed McQuaid, and using DNA from discarded cigarette butts, a match was made to the DNA from the crime scene. He was arrested August 30th, 2019 in Oregon and eventually extradited to Alaska. When Shelley's mother, Judy, heard the news, she said that she was just flabbergasted. She had nearly given up hope on Shelley's case ever being solved, and I can't imagine how that must have felt. Over the years since Shelley's murder, McQuaid racked up several offenses on his Alaskan criminal record, including stalking and domestic violence. So it seems clear that he had continued to be a violent predator towards women. After he was arrested, he admitted that he, quote, drank a lot back then and didn't really remember Shelley, but that he may have had sex with her and forgotten. McQuaid's wife, Tracy, and brother Richard insist that he is innocent, of course. He's apparently currently suffering from stage four liver cancer and other health issues. In April, he requested his bail be lowered from 1 million to 2,500 due to health concerns related to COVID-19. The judge ordered his bail to be lowered to 10,000, but I could not find any follow-up info as to whether he was actually able to post bail. I personally hope not, and I will definitely do an update once I get more information on this case. But it seems that it's currently just in a holding pattern until his trial comes around. You know, every time a case like this comes around and gets an answer or an arrest, I'm always just so, I feel overwhelmingly emotional thinking about 
just what the family must be going through after years of probably hopelessness and, you know, just feeling despondent, like they're never going to get an answer. And then suddenly it's fascinating. I just, this new DNA technology, genetic genealogy is just super exciting to me. And yeah, I'm trying not to get emotional, but that is the story of Shelley Connolly. And I will definitely be watching out for the trial and keep you updated on that one. And sadly, while I was researching this, I realized that about exactly a month after McQuaid was arrested, there was a different female murder victim's body found at the exact same spot where Shelley had been found. So it's like, things change, but they still stay the same. I just find it horrible. So the next case I'll be discussing is slightly more recent. And that is the 1996 murder of 17-year-old Jessica Baggin. Jessica was born May 3rd, 1979, to George and Vicki Baggin. Her hometown was Sitka, Alaska. And I'm going to give you an overview of Sitka because it's got a fascinating history. Sitka is somewhat famous for being the physically largest city in the U.S., occupying an area of over 4,800 square miles nearly 2,900 of which is on land. The town is located on Baranoff Island as part of the Southeast Alaska Panhandle. It was originally settled thousands of years ago by the Klingit Alaska natives, but during the 1600s and 1700s, British and American explorers discovered all of the valuable seal fur that they could acquire in Sitka and other parts of Alaska. Eventually, mutual trade was set up between the Klingits and the British and Americans. But then in the 1700s, Russian explorers began exploring, exploring various parts of the Alaska coast, and they too wanted to get in on the fur trade over in Alaska. But they weren't really interested in a mutually beneficial relationship with the people who had inhabited the area for thousands of years. They wanted to just sort of take over the land and colonize the people. And over time, more and more Russians and other outsiders came to Sitka, and the Russians decided to create a new Russian settlement at Sitka called New Archangel. There were decades of tension between the Klingits and the Russians, until finally, 126 years after Russia established their first Alaskan settlement, they decided to sell Alaska to the United States in 1867. They had just lost the Crimean War and worried that the British would take Alaska from them. At this point, they had basically decimated the seal population, so it wasn't worth that much to them anymore anyway. And Sitka remained the capital of Alaska until 1906 when it transferred to Juneau. You know, I've never actually been there, but I really would like to visit because it sounds like a really unique Alaskan town. And, you know, the whole island area is covered in rainforest. There's tons of bears and other animals, and it must have been a really interesting place to grow up. There are still bits and pieces left over from the Russian occupation, including a large cathedral. And growing up there must have felt like being part of a cozy small town. The 
with a population of around 7,800 the year Jessica was born. Jessica was just another lovely, outgoing teenage girl. She was close to her family. She loved out doing outdoor activities with them. She was considering pursuing a career as a chef when she got older and loved cooking. She was friendly and loved making people laugh. Jessica's 17th birthday was May 3rd, 1996, and she celebrated at her sister's house with a party. Sometime after midnight, she headed home on foot, walking down a bike path, but she never made it home. The next morning, her family reported her missing, and a search began. Two days later, Jessica's body was found just a few dozen yards off the bike path in a shallow grave, covered with a dead tree. She was mere blocks from her own home. She had been raped and strangled. And just a few days after her murder, a local man came forward and confessed to killing her. But none of the physical evidence linked to him. Nonetheless, he went to trial and was acquitted. But oddly enough, I could not find much information on the trial. Since then, over the last few decades, law enforcement never gave up on Jessica's case. Her case was heavily investigated, and with there being DNA left at the scene, dozens of suspects were ruled out using that DNA over the years. Lieutenant Dave Tugman had been the Sitka police officer who had originally investigated her case. And when he became the head of the Alaska State Troopers cold case team, he urged them to focus on her case. It was one that he just couldn't let go. In 2018, the case was going nowhere, and law enforcement decided to try and solve it using genetic genealogy. So they submitted a sample of the DNA to Parabon Nanolabs, again, and this led them to narrow in on a suspect, Stephen Branch, age 66 in 2020, he would have been 42 back in 1996, and had been living in Sitka at the time, though had since relocated to Arkansas. Law enforcement learned that Branch had actually gone to trial in 1997 for the sexual assault of a teenager, but was acquitted. In early 2020, the ABI contacted law enforcement in Arkansas and requested that they circumspectly obtain DNA from Branch for a comparison. Eventually, DNA from a dropped item was obtained from a relative of his, which confirmed that the DNA from the crime scene would likely match Branch's DNA. In early August 2020, just a few weeks ago, Alaska law enforcement traveled to Branch's residence in Arkansas to question him about the homicide and request a DNA sample. Branch refused to talk or give DNA. And when law enforcement left, planning to go get a warrant for his DNA, he, 30 minutes later, killed himself. After his death, law enforcement was able to get a warrant to get his DNA from his body and it conclusively proved that he had been Jessica's killer 24 years after her death. At the time of his death, Branch had been living in Arkansas for a decade. He had a wife named Barbara and two children. Prior to leaving Alaska, he had racked up several domestic violence offenses on his record, 
along with the previously mentioned sexual assault charge, which actually stemmed from an incident which occurred just two months prior to Jessica's murder. I could not find much information out about that, but it did result in him being charged with three charges of first-degree sexual assault. He was obviously a man who resorted to violence to get what he wanted, and when push came to shove and he might have to finally own up to the consequences of his actions, he took the coward's way out and took the truth about what happened that May 9th in 1996 to the grave. Though I'm sure it's not the resolution that her family wanted, I'm sure they are glad to know that one more monster is off the streets, even if by his own hand. With the cases of Sophie Sergi, Shelley Connolly, and Jessica Baggin all being solved with genetic genealogy in the last two years, I'm intrigued to see what other cold cases might be solved in the future. Lord knows Alaska has plenty of them. And part of me is so damn delighted when I think about these predatory creeps who probably think that they got away with their dirty deeds from decades ago. Then suddenly they get a knock at the door while they're cooking a roast. And I would absolutely love to be a fly on the wall to see the pants-shitting face that they must make when they realize how fucked they are when their past comes back to call on them. But that's just me. I'm really excited to see what sort of cases can be closed in the future using this technology. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Both of these cases were really hard emotionally to research. It's rough thinking about someone losing their life at such a young age and just missing out on their entire future. But I'm so glad to hear that these families now have some answer for what happened to their child. Well, I will see you guys next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, feel free to hit me up on social media. I'm on Twitter at Midnight Sun Pod, or you can email me at MidnightSunMurder at Gmail, and would love to hear case suggestions as well. I've got some coming up, but I can always add more to my list. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>